Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the, the announcement of good news, the arrival of the king. Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word, as we have heard it read, and as we now listen to it applied to our lives, that you would challenge us, that in this Christmas we would, we would see more than the, the excitement of the story, but we would, we would know the need that is placed, that is within each of us to respond, to decide and, and hear who Jesus is and respond to your announcement in your word. Lord, some of us come with, with eager expectation in this season of celebration, others with the, the heartache of loss and of sadness. And yet each of us come, whether we come in, in happiness or in sorrow, we come in great need. We come as people who need your word and need your presence. And so we come rejoicing in what you have done for us in Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Janine and Marge were, were trying to figure out which of the figurines in the nativity set was Joseph. They were setting up their display at their church. It's an annual display where a hundred uh, different little nativity sets are, are set out. And the reason they were having trouble figuring out who Joseph was in this set is that all of the characters were dogs. So it was hard to tell if it was the Dalmatian or the Kali that was Joseph. Now that may not be the challenge that, that faces you and I when we set out our nativity sets. And, and I admit, I'm not really a dog person, but the whole idea of Jesus as a puppy sort of messes with my Christology. Uh, but we do, when we, when we set out the nativity, we, tr we have to try and figure out, where do you put the, the wise men? Where did the magi go? Well, Matthew, as the, the gospel story is, is told to us, Matthew places these magi right in the nativity. I mean, the verse we read last week, 
The very last verse of chapter 1 says that, that Mary gave birth to a son, and Joseph gave him the name Jesus. The very next action is the arrival of the Magi. Now, we know that, that historically, maybe that it took months. This is not there at the manger scene because they're already in a house. We know from, we'll see next week as, as Herod goes on a tear and starts killing children, that he, that he kills little boys up to two years old. So this, I mean, it, it could have been months later that this took place. But, but I think the Magi belong in, in our nativities. I mean, in my house growing up, sometimes the, the Magi would, would move across the room. They'd still sort of be on their journey on the other side of the room because we wanted the historical accuracy that at the day of Jesus' birth, they probably weren't there, but well, maybe that was just me and my mischievous brothers messing with my mother as well. But, but I think we can move those figurines and put them right in the nativity because that's what Matthew was doing for us. He's bringing the Magi to, to, to let us see what is the proper response to Jesus. And really, chapter 2 shows us this, this set of contrasts in the way that, that different people respond to the announcement of the birth of the king. And so I want to follow this morning in an outline proposed by, by one of my New Testament seminary professors, Dan Doriani. Um, and his commentary on, on the Gospel of Matthew is very helpful. And, and he and he wants us to, to look at, and, and I, I think it's helpful to see this contrast, the anger of Herod, the anxiety of the people, the apathy of the leaders, and the adoration of the Magi. I mean, the, the first response we have when the, when the Magi arrive, and they go to Herod, who is, look at verse 3, he is the king. He is the, the Roman-installed king of Judea. And so when, when these magi come and ask in verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod looks around and says, I haven't had any babies, not lately. And so if there's someone else claiming to be king of the Jews, this is a threat to my kingdom. And we know from historical sources that, that, that Herod was a, was, was a violent man. Uh, I mean, Matthew tells us about his violence, but, but so do other historians. And so the, the birth of another king threatens Herod. I mean, he, he calls the, the wise men together. He, I mean, you can see him already plotting as, as soon as the announcement is made. Look at, look at verse 3. He, he, he calls all of the th- verses 3 and 4. He calls all of the the teachers of the law together, and and he's trying to figure out, okay, where is this taking place? All right, I want to know know the location. I want to figure it out. He he responds by by calling the Magi back to him in verses 7 and 8 after he's talked and he finds out that Bethlehem is the location. Look at verse 7. He calls the Magi secretly, and he wants to, to gather as much information as he can, but he wants to keep the information close. He doesn't want this information spread because if this rumor starts to spread that there is another king, it... It could threaten him. And so he calls the Magi secretly to find out, wait, when did this star appear? And you can see the plot, which we'll look at next Sunday, the horrible plot that Herod will unfold in slaughtering children. You can see it already beginning to unfold. And when the the Magi don't return, and this is a verse we'll read next week, look at verse 16, when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And so the, 
birth of another king threatens Herod, and Herod responds in anger. Now, you and I might look at this and say, well, that's not the kind of response that I, you know, that's not me. I mean, Herod is one of those evil tyrants that you can put in the list of awful, awful leaders in history. But, but, but let me ask the, the, the question a little more directly. When things don't go your way, how do you respond? Or, or when is it in your life that, that anger begins to well up inside of you? I mean, maybe some of you can, you can point to, to circumstances, you know, you're tired, you're hungry, you're, you're exhausted, or, or, or maybe it's, you know, you've, you've, you've plowed through the day and you've kept that smile on your face even when your boss gave you terrible reports and terrible assignments, and then you get home and the smallest little thing at home, you know, lights that fuse and there's the, the explosion of anger. Because anger... I mean, anger, it can, can be a barometer for us of, of how we're actually doing. I mean, for Herod, it's, it's pretty easy to see. Why is Herod angry? Because the thing he holds most dear, his power, his authority, his prestige, might be taken from him. There's another one they're calling the king of the Jews. This group of magi, these, these wealthy men from, from the, the east, from another kingdom, have traveled a great distance to find another king. Well, what is it that you hold most dear? I mean, where does anger show up in your life when, when you don't get something, when, when people don't respond the way you want? Because it's doing the same thing, perhaps, in your heart that it was doing in Herod's. Now, now your kingdom might not be as big as Herod's was. Your power might not ex- extend as far. And your anger, hopefully, your anger hopefully doesn't go to the, the extremes of Herod's. But we know what that ugliness of anger looks like in our own hearts. As we snap at somebody for asking us a question. And it has nothing to do with the question. It has to do with the, the 46 other things that were piled up earlier in the day or the week or the month. But here, anger can actually be for us a, a barometer of, of what's taking the place of God in our lives. What is the idol that's been set before us? For Herod, it's, it's his power. It's his kingdom. But, but think of it. Herod's, Herod's response is irrational. If the Magi are, are right in the, the message that they bring, that God put a star in the sky, God has sent another king... If the, if the Magi are right, then Herod trying to stop God's plan, if, if Herod actually believes it's true, it's foolishness to try and defeat God's plan. But if Herod doesn't believe the Magi, then who cares about a tiny baby in Bethlehem? What will this little child do? I mean, Herod's response of, well, let's, let's send out the soldiers to slaughter some children. It's irrational, but, but you see, all sin, all of our sin is irrational because it, it doesn't ultimately make sense. The only appropriate response to God would be a response of, of love and worship. And so anytime we rebel and, we, and, and, and sinful anger wells up within us, it shows us that, that our rebellion against God is irrational. 
What does anger expose in your life? Now we see the anger of Herod, but but then notice the response of the people of Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. When Herod heard the news that that there is another who has been born king of the Jews, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. The people are anxious. Now, Herod was a, was a gifted ruler. I mean, historians note that, that he was skilled in combat. He was skilled in rhetoric. He was, he was a great politician. But he was also a horribly violent man. Not long before this incident in history, he had one of his wives, Miriam, killed, and he executed three of his sons on suspicion that, that maybe they're plotting against me to get rid of me. I mean, Josephus tells us that actually before Herod's death, Herod decided he wanted all of the, the important people in Jerusalem gathered together so that they could be slaughtered on the day of his death so that there would be weeping and mourning in Jerusalem. Now, thankfully, those orders weren't carried out. But many other violent orders of Herod were carried out. And so you can understand if, if Herod is angry, it would cause anxiety in the city. People would be disturbed and anxious. See, when, when we think of Christmas, we, we often think of comfort. And, and, and it's true. We sing words of comfort and joy. The angels arrive and announce peace on earth. But the arrival of Jesus brings hostility and upheaval. It changes everything because Jesus the King has arrived to defeat his enemies. And so anyone who sets himself up against Jesus will be defeated. And so for many people, when we look at our circumstances, we don't want things shaken up. Let's just, let's just keep things calm. And many of you, that's your, that's your survival strategy this season. You're going to be with family members, and your strategy is, I just need to get through it. Don't shake the boat. Don't talk about anything. I mean, we just say hello. Don't you look well? I mean, even if it's not true, we're just going to say it, shake hands, and we're going to move on. Because we don't want any circumstances. We don't want any turmoil in our lives because it will make us anxious. But do you see, when, when Jesus arrives, everything gets thrown into chaos. The, Jesus himself will challenge every single person. Who do you say I am? It will demand a response from each one of us. And so the anxiety of the people, I mean, the anxiety that, that you feel, or even the questions you have as, as, you, as, as you heard this story, who is this Jesus? That kind of turbulence within you is, is actually a, an appropriate response because you shouldn't be able to just read this story about the arrival of the king and shrug your shoulders and say, wasn't that a sweet day at church? You know, the arrival of the king throws everything upside down. You see, the people of Jerusalem, when, when they see Herod angry, their question is, what's about to go wrong here? Something bad is about to happen. But they forget to ask the question, what is right in what is taking place here? I mean, they forget to see that God himself has sent the king that they long for. And so their anxiety is only looking at the, the turbulence of the circumstances and not the truth of the arrival of the king. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. So we've seen the anger of Herod, the anxiety of the people, and and then consider the apathy of the leaders. 
In verse 4, Herod calls together the, the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law to ask them, where is the Christ to be born? Now, these are actually, when, when we hear that, that's a, a you know, the, the religious leaders, the, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, those, those are just kind of one big category in our minds, you know, as 21st century people, these, these ancient Jewish religious leaders. But actually what, what Herod is doing, is that he's, he's calling together the chief priests. I mean, those are sort of the, the political progressives. They're the ones who have aligned themselves with Rome to get themselves in positions of power. And so they're the, the you know, sort of the liberal scholars of, of their day. Whereas the, the, the teachers of the law, those are the conservative, Bible-believing scholars. And so Herod's thinking, well, you know, maybe you know, on some of these interpretive issues, you might get different questions if you ask somebody who's progressive or somebody who's conservative. And so let, you know, I'm going to check both ends of the spectrum here. But, but both the conservatives and the progressives give the same answer. They know right away when asked that question, where is Jesus to be born? I mean, if you walk down into our Sunday school classes and you ask our kids that question today, where was Jesus born? They're going to know the, the, the answer. Well, these religious leaders, they knew the prophecy that came from the prophet Micah. They can answer right away, in Bethlehem, in Judea. Now, do you know how far Bethlehem is from where Herod is in Jerusalem? It's like a couple hours walk. I mean, it's sort of like just over the hill. It's not like the, the thousand-mile journey the Magi had to make across the desert to get to Bethlehem. It's like, hey, let's run down there this afternoon and check and see what's going on. But what do the religious leaders do? The religious leaders who should be anticipating the fulfillment of this prophecy. Someone arrives and says, the promised Messiah is here. Where should we go? Where should we go to find this? You go to Bethlehem. Yeah, just, you know, kind of over that hill. But Matthew makes no note. None of the gospel writers record any of these religious leaders saying, you know what, on the off chance that maybe this is really true, I'm going to go, you know, it's going to kill an afternoon, but, but let me go check this out. I mean, after all, this could be the Messiah. No, the religious leaders are apathetic. None of them respond. They should be the ones waiting, longing for the king, waiting for the arrival of the promised Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God to be the anointed one who would rescue his people. But none of them go. They can pass the Bible trivia quiz. But that's all it is. It's mere head knowledge. See, it's, it's not enough to know the, the facts of this story. You have to believe it. One of our missionaries who serves in, in India is, is taking classes at a Hindu university. And, and he was in class, and his Hindu professor shared with the class the story of Christianity. And, and our missionary said, it's actually, in terms of the facts that he presented, one of the best and clearest examples of what Jesus Christ did that he's ever heard. The, this Hindu religious leader said, well, Jesus Christ, he's the, the Christian God who was born of a virgin into human flesh, a real human. And he lived a life of obedience according to the commands given by God. And then he died on the cross so that his blood could pay the penalty for the sins of the people. But God raised him on the third day 
and he now reigns in heaven. And our missionary thought, that's a really clear explanation. But for this religious leader, this Hindu religious leader, who actually thought that those were, yeah, I accept that is true for, for those Christians that live on the other side of the world, but it, it's not true for me. I mean, it's not enough to just know the facts of the story and be able to recount it. Yes, you have to be able to do that. You have to understand who Jesus is, why he came, and what he did. But mere head knowledge is not enough. It's not enough to be able to say, I know where the Christ is to be born, but not respond. The religious leaders don't rejoice. They don't join the Magi in worship. They provide an answer to Herod, and then they're done. That's it. When they show up again in the story of the gospel, they, they reject Jesus. The response that's required of us is to, is to know who Jesus is, but then to go to him in worship, to run to Jesus, to admit your own sin, and that Jesus' death provides hope for you. And see, that's the response that, that I mean, as, as these these wrong responses are set. Now we see the true response. It's, it's not anger or anxiety or apathy. But we now see the adoration of the Magi. I mean, these Magi are, are foreigners. They come from the east, probably from, from, the, from Persia. And they are men who, who have mixed astronomy and astrology. And in the ancient world, those were sort of intertwined for you and I uh, uh, you know, a, a modern astronomer would, wouldn't be caught reading his horoscope. But in the ancient world, those scientific and, and mystical things were kind of intertwined. And actually, astronomy is clearly forbidden in God's law. I mean, it's, it's, it is rebellion against God. And yet, what does God do? God condescends to speak a language these foreigners would understand by giving them a sign. Now, like the, the Hindu professor, you might think, well, doesn't this just show us that, that, you know, any sort of religious quest can get you to Jesus? I mean, here you have astrologers watching the stars, and, and you know, they end up getting themselves to heaven. I mean, doesn't any path work? But, but notice what Matthew does. He, he's making clear that that this message is not just for Jews. Yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but it's a message that is for all people. But what did the Magi have to do? They can't stay and worship in their own way. They have to come to Jesus. Because actually, it, 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 it doesn't make sense in the end that, that you can just kind of throw up your hands and say, aren't, aren't all religions equally valid? When Jesus himself will in his ministry say, the only way to know the Father is if you know me. If you don't know me, Jesus says, then you don't know God. Or Jesus will tell his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, when, when Christ himself makes an exclusive claim, saying that there is no other way to get to heaven, then, then no longer can Christianity just be thrown into the mix of, well, all religions are equally true. Because how can it be true that Jesus says he's the only way while every other religion is also equally true? Do you see the, the logical contradiction? If all religions are equally true, then Jesus is wrong. And therefore, Christianity is not true. And therefore, the claim that all religions are equally true now falls. It, 
It's a logical impossibility. It's core commitment of this sort of universalism, this inclusivism. And it feels initially sort of generous, but it, it logically destroys itself. Its central claim that all religions are equally valid invalidates it. Because Jesus himself is saying he's the only way. And what Matthew is doing is not saying, look, these stargazers found their way to God. He's making clear that, that God made himself known to them and then led them to Jesus. They had to turn from their, their old ways of worship and come and worship Jesus. And it's the way God has worked all throughout history, condescending to, to speak to humanity, walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, sh- sending angels, God himself appearing, God speaking in an audible voice, God giving miraculous signs through his prophets and through Jesus himself. God condescends to make himself known to us. It's showing us how great God's love is. Christmas is a message for broken sinners. If the Magi are invited, these astrologers from far away, if they are invited, then you and I are invited as well. But invited to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. These, these Magi are, you know, as, as the, the, the Christmas hymn would, would tell us that they're, they're we three kings of Orient are. Well, they're not kings. They're, they're more like advisors to the king, like a president's cabinet. They are important, educated men. They're probably actually more than three of them because if you're traveling with this much wealth, it's going to take more than three guys to cross a thousand miles of, of dangerous territory. And it was probably a big enough caravan traveling across the, the desert that people in Jerusalem noticed that not just their arrival to get Herod's attention. And, and, and so, so these, these men travel a, a great distance. They're powerful men. And when they arrive, notice the description that, that Matthew gives us of their response. Look at verse 10. When they see the star that, that takes them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, they were overjoyed. And look what happens when they come to, to see Jesus with his mother Mary in verse 11. They bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And these are the, the, you know, the, the, the symbolic gestures. These are the, the greatest gifts of wealth that they could bring. I mean, when, when you want to buy a, a gift for, for the king... What do you give him? You find the best that you can offer. And so they bring the, the most valuable things, gold and incense and myrrh. See, the, the Magi may not have known much. They didn't, and when they set off on their journey, probably understand the whole of the Christmas story. But the little that they knew, they responded to. They acted on. They, were, they, they saw God has made something known to us, and then they went, and they went with, with gifts. Uh, J.C. Ryle, an evangelical scholar from the middle of the 1800s, he says this, there is no greater faith in the whole Bible, no greater faith in, in all of the prophets that had come before, in all of the people of God in Israel. There is no greater faith in all of the Bible than these wise men, than the Magi, who respond to this, this glimmer of hope, this star shining, this revelation from God, and go to find the king. 
I mean, because imagine the scene. They've just been in King Herod's royal presence. His, his power and wealth would have been on display before them. And now they come to Bethlehem. Now, they're in a house at this point, so they're not still outside with the, the animals. Jesus probably is no longer in the feeding trough. But when they arrive, there's no doubt that this is a poor family. I mean, the other Gospels will tell us that they're so poor, they, they can't even bring the ordinary offering at Jesus' birth to the temple. They bring the offering that's, that's allowed for the poorest people. There's no other gold or, or incense or myrrh. There's a poor peasant woman and her baby. And yet they know this is the king. And so when they give their gifts, in, in the ancient world, when, if, if they had given gifts to Herod, they might have expected him to give them something in return, sort of the, the gesture in the ancient world, that you had met with the king. When they give their gifts to Jesus, they know they are getting nothing in return. Because they can look around the room and see every possession of this family. And it's nothing compared to what they just traveled with. I mean, this family could fit all of their stuff in you know, sort of one of the suitcases the Magi drag in. This child has nothing to give them. Not yet. But remember the promise. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the King who wouldn't just give, give them symbolic gifts of, of gold and incense and myrrh. I mean, Jesus is the one who would give his life. And, and think of the way that, that these gifts were likely used. I mean, Mary and Joseph have almost nothing, and yet in in, in next week's sermon, we'll see that they have to flee from Herod. They have to escape as refugees to another country. These gifts probably finance that trip and save this infant king from Herod's violence. I mean, this king is rescued by these gifts. But not so that he'd be saved from death. Yes, saved from death here in infancy but so that he could live a life of obedience. He could declare God's, the arrival of God's kingdom and so that then he could give himself on the cross for them. Jesus is called the king of the Jews in this passage. That's what the Magi arrive saying. Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We know Herod's response to that phrase but when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, if you were to sit down and, and, and spend some time today and read from, from Matthew 1 all the way through his Gospel, the next time that description of Jesus will come up, that he is the king of the Jews, will not be until his arrest and his trial and his beating and his death. Because Jesus came to be the king of the Jews, the one who would give himself for his people. Pilate, the Roman governor, at the end of Jesus' life will ask him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. But he answered, Herod. The soldiers of, 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 of Pilate here, 
will then take Jesus out. They gather a company of soldiers, Matthew tells us. They strip Jesus. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him, and they mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Pilate puts the charge, the reason that Jesus is crucified, he writes it on the cross, puts it above Jesus. This is what it says. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Do you see who Jesus is? He is the one who has been born, the king of the Jews. But do you see what that means? It means he's Jesus. Jesus, he proves to us that God will save. How will he do it? By himself giving his life for us. When the Magi bring their gifts, they're gifts of unimaginable wealth. They're the, the best gifts that could be offered to Jesus. Jesus, in return, will give them something much greater, eternal life, because he will give himself for them. And so Matthew, in the arrival of the Magi, Matthew, by placing the Magi in the nativity scene, is challenging us. How will you respond? Will you respond with anger about all that's gone wrong in your life? Will you respond with anxiety, with, with fear for, for the circumstances that surround you? Or, or will you just kind of shrug your shoulders in apathy and say, we wish you a Merry Christmas and sort of wander on your way? Or will you respond in the, the only way that makes sense when you understand who Jesus is? By bowing before him and adoring him, bowing down to worship him. How will you respond to Jesus? Jesus, God who saves us. Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus, the one who died for all who would believe. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, it is through Jesus Christ alone that we have the hope of salvation. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, you would help us to turn and respond in faith. Lord, that you would shake us out of our apathy or turn us from our anger or, or anxiety and that we would come to Jesus to worship him, to adore him as the king, that we would see his great sacrifice for us and give him praise. Lord, for those that are that are here with us this morning that are, that are wrestling with that question, that wonder with the, the Magi, what, what is it that we've seen and heard? Lord, give them the faith now to believe. Even as we conclude in song, let the, the truth of the, the gospel message be pressed deep into each of our hearts. Let us not continue in apathy or fear, but let us respond in worship. We come giving praise in Jesus' name. Amen.